This is our third of four episodes on American Deaf history. These episodes were part of a larger project I started years ago, and I decided to release them now. These are not true crime, and they are not deep dives, but rather a four-part overview of the history of sign language and deaf education in the United States. If you are interested in a true crime case that involves some of these issues, please listen to the Darlene Vandergeesen episode, which is what inspired me to dust these off and release them now. My message is very brief but important. That message is, a deaf person can do anything a hearing person can, except hear. Dr. I. King Jordan Welcome to our third episode. In the last episode, we discussed the origins of deaf education in America. We stopped short of what can arguably be called the United States' largest contribution to deaf education in the world, the founding of Gallaudet University, the first university in the world for deaf students. It remains the only college or university specifically designed for deaf and hard-of-hearing people. While other schools may have a department or, more often, accommodations in the classroom, such as interpreters, Gallaudet classes are conducted in American Sign Language. But Gallaudet University did not initially start as a college. It almost didn't start at all. Its origins lie with a controversial figure named Dr. Platt Henry Skinner. Dr. Skinner was a staunch abolitionist, and it's believed he aided in the Underground Railroad, which helped enslaved people escape through New York and into Canada. But before this, he showed up in Washington, D.C. in 1856 with five children, some deaf and some blind. These were children of fugitive slaves, and it was Skinner's goal to establish a school for the deaf and blind in Washington, D.C. for them. He soon identified 10 more potential students in the area. Regardless of someone's proximity to the school, deaf schools at the time were all boarding schools and did not have day programs. So beyond just finding a building to hold classes, Dr. Skinner had to raise enough money to house, feed, and care for all of these students. In his search for funding, he came across a wealthy businessman and politician named Amos Kendall who was also interested in deaf education. Kendall was able to fund the purchase of two acres of land and a home that would be used to house and educate the children. The school was initially unnamed, but using his political connections, Kendall later presented a bill to Congress that established the Columbia Institution for the Deaf and Dumb and Blind. This also provided financial support for all local students to be able to attend the school. Dr. Skinner was installed as the principal and teacher at the school, but within a few months, things took a grim turn. Amos Kendall was told through a friend that there were complaints from a local parent about how their son was being treated at the school. So Kendall and a board member went to the school to inspect and they found the front door locked. They banged on the door, but none of the children in the home were able to unlock it themselves. Kendall and a board member broke the door down, 
and found the children left unattended, and two were in bed suffering from heat exhaustion. Kendall went to court to obtain custody of the five children who had been brought to D.C. by Dr. Skinner on the grounds they were neglected. Skinner defended himself, saying that he did not mistreat or neglect the children. Rather, the accusations were fueled by his integration policies. Skinner was educating Black and white students together, housing them together, and even having them eat their meals together, a very radical approach in the time of legalized slavery in the U.S. He taught equality of the races, and his abolitionist stance was, frankly, not welcome. Skinner claimed he was essentially being framed due to this. Regardless of the truth behind these accusations, Skinner lost his fight. Kendall was given legal custody of the five children, and the local children all returned to their families. Skinner returned to New York under a cloud of suspicion, and the search for a new principal and teacher began. Through this search, a friend introduced Amos Kendall to Edward Minor Gallaudet, Thomas Gallaudet's youngest son. He had followed his father's footsteps into deaf education and taught at the school in Hartford that his father had established and his mother had graduated from. To not confuse father and son, I will call Edward Gallaudet by his first name in this episode. Edward was a young man at the time, only 20 years old, and he was Kendall's second choice. But he traveled to D.C. to meet with Kendall, and it became clear that Edward's age would not put him at a disadvantage. He had learned sign language before he could talk, and he knew the language as fluently as any native signer would. He had grown up with deaf education being his family's business. Edward's real goal was one that his father also hoped for but didn't live to see. He wanted to establish a college for deaf students, and he agreed to take over the school in D.C. under the condition that the college would be part of the long-term plan. Kendall agreed, and Edward and his mother, Sophia, moved to Washington, D.C. On June 13, 1857, the school reopened with Sophia Fowler Gallaudet serving as matron and Edward as superintendent. Eighteen children enrolled. Seven years later, on April 8, 1864, Abraham Lincoln signed the charter that allowed the Columbia Institute to issue collegiate degrees. In 1865, the school dropped and blind from its name. Blind students who would otherwise attend the school were transferred to the Maryland School for the Blind. The upper education part of the school was renamed the National Deaf-Mute College, and the primary grades, K through 12, were called the Kendall School. Edward was named college president at the inauguration in the summer of 1864. Laurent Clare, who had co-founded the American School in Hartford with Thomas Gallaudet, was in attendance. Eight students enrolled in the degree program. The first graduate of the National Deaf-Mute College was a man from Maine named Melville Ballard. He had previously taught lower grades at the school and went on to establish Silent World, the first literary magazine for deaf readers. By breezing through this timeline, 
It may sound like it was easy enough to get support and funding for the college. However, it was anything but. Edward had to constantly lobby for funding for the institution from the federal government. Edward would take to hiding in the Senate cloak room, waiting on the chance to talk to senators whose support he needed. There was a lot of discrimination in the congressional opposition to funding the school. B.F. Butler, chair of the House Appropriations Committee, challenged the value of educating anyone who was deaf, stating that even after a deaf person is given all the education he can be given, he was still, quote, just half a man. Another congressman named Elihu B. Washburn claimed the school was spending inefficiently and that there was no value in providing so many resources to deaf students. Both of these men would be relentless in their opposition to the school and their personal dislike for Edward Gallaudet, who pushed back against them and their bigotry. It is worth noting that Congressman Washburn's nephew, Cadwallader Washburn, would, after the congressman's death, graduate from the National College and become a well-known deaf artist and war correspondent. You have to wonder if Washburn's viewpoint would have changed if he lived to see what his nephew accomplished. Around the time Cadwallader Washburn was a student, there was a slight shift in the educational philosophy of the D.C. schools. Edward Gallaudet once again followed his father's footsteps and went to Europe to learn more about deaf education there. Edward spoke critically of the strict oral methods preferred in Europe and advocated for sign language while there. However, Edward had, through these debates and discussions, grown to see a value in teaching speech. He became one of the first advocates of the combined method of education using both sign language and speech training to educate students. It's interesting to note that this was his father's initial intention. Thomas Gallaudet felt that taking the best of both methods would reach the most students, but after studying more, he couldn't find a way to combine them in a way that didn't give the students just half of an education in both. The methods appeared to him too incompatible to make them work together. But Edward felt even a limited amount of speech training could benefit some deaf students. Training in speech and lip reading became part of deaf education in the Kendall School for Elementary Students. As for the college, Edward encouraged the opening of a department to train hearing people to teach deaf students in both the oral and sign methods of education. The then-called Normal Department was established in 1891. It is now called the Department of Education, where it still trains graduate and postgraduate students in deaf education. Initially, deaf students were excluded from the normal school. It was only to train hearing teachers. There was at the time a debate growing over whether deaf people should teach deaf students. One notable advocate against deaf educators was Alexander Graham Bell, who lobbied Congress to prevent it. We will get more in-depth on Bell's philosophy on deaf education in our next episode, which will be dedicated to the rise of oralism in the United States. 
Now, though the schools in D.C. were changing deaf education in America, they were only changing it for some. The National College initially excluded women except in three instances, and none of those women finished their degrees. Many, including Edward Gallaudet, were against the co-education of women. In 1881, the school began admitting women after a woman named Laura Sheridan wrote a persuasive argument on why women should be allowed admission. While admitting women as students was given some support, the support was lukewarm. The school only set up temporary housing accommodations because it was not believed the female students would remain in the school long enough to necessitate a permanent dorm. The women who were admitted were also excluded by the administration from participating in extracurricular activities. This sent a clear message that the women could attend classes, but they would not be getting the full coeducational experience. Add into this the harassment the female students faced from some of the male students, the National College was not a welcoming place for them. So the women on campus formed their own club called OWLS, and only members are allowed to know the meaning of the name. In the tradition of other universities, they would eventually adopt Greek letters for their sorority, and OWLS is now known as Phi Kappa Zeta. In 1892, Alto M. Lohman became the first woman to graduate from the college, and in 1893, Agatha Teagle graduated valedictorian. Her graduation speech was titled The Intellect of Women, and the question of whether the college would remain coeducational was finally settled. In 1899, Edward Gallaudet wrote, quote, On the whole, I feel that the presence of young women in the college has had a favorable influence, end quote. As women were being accepted into the school, however, things were changing along racial lines. The school started as an integrated school with five Black children who were deaf or blind. Children of color were admitted without issue in the lower and upper grades, as well as at the college, until the wake of Plessy v. Ferguson. This Supreme Court ruling established the doctrine of separate but equal, which is to say racial segregation was constitutional. Edward Gallaudet had been getting complaints from white parents as the enrollment of Black children was going up at the school. He was unsure what to do about it. He had noticed that the white students were increasingly bullying and harassing students of color, and now the Supreme Court gave him a solution, separate but equal. This podcast is about the facts of what happened, and I'm not providing my opinion throughout. So I'm just going to repeat what I just said. The solution to white parents complaining and white students harassing Black students was to kick the Black students out of the school. In 1905, Congress passed legislation saying that Black deaf students in Washington, D.C. were to be educated at an all-Black school in Maryland. 
black students would not be admitted into the Kendall School again until 1952, when a judge ruled in Miller v. D.C. Board of Education that forcing students to residential schools out of state was separate, but it certainly was not equal. The students had to be educated in D.C. So the Kendall School opened its doors to Black students again. However, they kept the classes segregated until the Supreme Court ruling in Brown v. the Topeka, Kansas Board of Education, which made integrated classrooms the law. The school was only then open to all deaf students. In the 1970s, the Kendall School was split into a K-8 elementary school, and then a high school was opened called the Model Secondary School. The National Deaf Mute College was renamed Gallaudet College, and then in 1986, it would be given its present name of Gallaudet University. You may have noticed that the names of the schools were after prominent hearing advocates and not deaf ones. Gallaudet University, the Kendall School. There are buildings named after deaf advocates, Fowler Hall after Sophia Fowler-Gallaudet, and the Washburn Arts Building after Cadwallader Washburn. But the schools are named after the hearing. And for years, the people in charge of the schools were also hearing. In 1910, after 53 years as the head of the school, Edward Gallaudet retired, and Percival Hall, a graduate of the normal school, became the second president of the college. Then, in 1947, Leonard Elstad became the third president. Elstad had a master's degree from Gallaudet, again as a hearing student of the school. It was while Elstad was president that enrollment Gallaudet exploded and the school achieved accreditation. With the retirement of Elstad in 1968, Gallaudet saw another hearing president, Dr. Edward C. Merrill, Jr., Aside from being hearing, Merrill didn't know sign language prior to being hired, though he was said to have started learning it very quickly. Merrill retired in 1983 and promoted the possibility that a deaf president could be chosen. Instead, the board chose a hearing man named W. Lloyd Johns in October 1983. Three months later, he asked the Board of Trustees for a letter of endorsement and support. There had been some board members who did not entirely agree with Johns' approach, and he didn't feel like he could continue as president without their express support. The request for this letter was denied, and Johns resigned. Jerry Carlton Lee, another hearing man, became the college's sixth president. Lee had taught at Gallaudet, and when he took the position, he said he only intended to fill the role temporarily. During this time, some faculty of Gallaudet formed the President's Council on Deafness to advocate for the needs of the deaf people at the school, both students and staff alike. While the school was designed from the start to be a place for deaf people, the administration and the Board of Trustees continue to largely be composed of hearing people. The idea that the deaf students could be educated and the deaf teachers could teach didn't extend to the belief that deaf administrators could lead. And members of the President's Council hoped they would see a change in the stance when the board selected the next president of the school. 
As promised, Lee only served temporarily, and in 1987, he resigned to accept a job in the private sector. The Board of Trustees, after launching a search for the next president of Gallaudet University, narrowed the candidates down to six people. Three were deaf and three were hearing. They would continue to narrow it down until they had three candidates to choose from in the end. Two of the candidates were deaf educators. One was Dr. Harvey Corson, superintendent of the Louisiana School for the Deaf. The other was Dr. I. King Jordan, who was then serving as the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Gallaudet. The third candidate was a hearing educator named Dr. Elizabeth Zinzer. She was the assistant chancellor at the University of North Carolina, a well-educated and respected educator, but she had no specific training in deaf education, and she was still learning American Sign Language. Various groups argued for a deaf president to be selected. Even politicians like Vice President George Bush supported the appointment of a university president who was deaf. On March 1, 1988, a rally of over 1,000 people was held to push for the selection of one of the two deaf candidates. This is when students really began to actively participate in this movement. Prior to this, advocating for the selection of one of the deaf candidates was driven largely by non-students, whether they were faculty of the school, alumni, or community members. This was perhaps because the students took it for granted that, of course, in the late 1980s, the board would recognize the need for a deaf president. The board held interviews with all three of the final candidates on March 5th and March 6th at the Mayflower Hotel. At 6.30 p.m. on March 6th, a Sunday, the board issued a press release announcing that Dr. Elizabeth Zinzer was the next president of Gallaudet University. Due to worry of the initial student reaction to this, the board did not go to the campus that night. They opted instead to stay at the hotel and answer media questions there in a move that was called cowardly. There was anger, disbelief, and hurt at this announcement, and several hundred people began protesting both on campus and along the surrounding streets. The president of the National Association of the Deaf, an advocacy group for the deaf and hard of hearing community, was present and he rallied the unorganized crowd into a march, a march to the Mayflower Hotel to confront the board. This began at best as mildly organized chaos, but a few representatives from the protesters were allowed to go into the hotel and have a meeting with the board of trustees. When they left that meeting, word spread that the board chair, Jane Spillman, said to them, quote, deaf people are not able to function in a hearing world, end quote. Spillman has denied that she ever said that, but that quote, rightfully attributed to her or not, stoked the flames. Spillman, it is often noted, was not only hearing, but she did not learn sign language even as she sat as the chair of the board over Gallaudet University. She could only speak with staff and students through an interpreter. Long feeling that they were being overlooked by the hearing administration, the choice of a hearing president confirmed to the students and the faculty that they were right. The board was not connected enough to the deaf community. 
The group then marched to the White House and then back to the campus to plan what their next steps were. They came up with four demands for the Board of Trustees. D, a deaf president must be selected. E, the end of Jane Spillman's place on the board. A, a 51% majority of deaf members on the Board of Trustees. F, forget and have no reprisal against students and staff participating in the protests. The administrators arrived on campus the following morning to find that all of the entrances were blocked. The students had pulled cars up to the parking lot entrances and then deflated the tires so they couldn't be moved. They formed human chains, preventing administrators from even being able to walk onto the campus. Only teachers and staff were allowed in, and at noon that day, so were the members of the Board of Trustees. In a three-hour meeting with faculty, students, and members of the board, all four demands were rejected. Jane Spillman then went into a packed auditorium to announce that the board's appointment of Dr. Zillner would stand. Or at least, that was her intention when she went in there. She never got to make her announcement. Harvey Goodstein, a member of the faculty, went up on stage first and encouraged the students to walk out in protest, and they did. The media really began noticing the movement now as the number of protesters swelled, and an organized march to the Capitol building began. The Deaf President Now movement was in full swing. These protests were largely student-led, though the faculty of the school, who were mostly deaf and mostly alumni of Gallaudet, supported and organized behind the scenes. Without the passion and sheer numbers of students and without the support of the faculty, it's unclear how far this protest would have gotten. It took both sides to turn their feelings of injustice into a movement for civil rights. On Wednesday, March 9th, two interesting things happened. First, there was dissension within the Board of Trustees. Two hearing members began to support the protesters. The second thing, Dr. Zinzer arrived in D.C., feeling that her presence may help quash the protests. She met with one of the deaf candidates for the position, Dr. I. King Jordan. Dr. Jordan had learned about the protests the morning he showed up for work and found he couldn't get onto the campus. Though it was being covered in the news, this was before closed captioning, and as a deaf man, he had no reason to watch TV. Dr. Jordan joined a meeting between Dr. Zinzer and the students. She asked them, through an interpreter, that she be given a chance to show the value she could provide the school. The students continued to repeat their demands for a deaf president and a deaf majority on the board of trustees. The students left that meeting without resolution. Doctors Jordan and Zinzer were then taken to a press conference. Dr. Jordan said he was not aware he was going to a press conference, and he was on the spot being asked to make a statement. As the current dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, he said what he thought it was his duty to say, that he supported the board. So we have a deaf dean of the university on the side of the hearing president, and the disappointment felt by the community was huge. 
National news shows began airing interviews with all sides involved, including students, alumni, Dr. Zinzer, and even Marley Matlin. Marley Matlin may have been the most famous deaf person in America in 1988, having won an Oscar for her role in the movie version of Children of a Lesser God just a year before. Prominent civil rights activists like Jesse Jackson were taking notice and lending their support. Jesse Jackson said, quote, The problem is not that the deaf students do not hear. The problem is that the hearing world does not listen, end quote. That night, Dr. Jordan was home thinking about what was going on and what he had been swept up in. He realized his support was due to his job at the university. But he wouldn't work for the university forever. And as a deaf man who would be deaf for the rest of his life, he realized his heart was in supporting a deaf president. Believing that if he sided with the protesters, the chances of him one day becoming the deaf president of Gallaudet were slim to none. But Dr. Jordan still reached out to the organizers of the Deaf President Now protest and told them he was rescinding his support of Dr. Zinzer's appointment. He was on their side. On Thursday, at a press conference, Dr. Jordan further risked tossing his career in the trash by publicly backing the protests. That evening, Dr. Zinzer resigned her tenure as president of Gallaudet University after only four days, having never even set foot on the campus. She said she stepped down not in response to the demonstrators, but to allow civil rights to progress. The board then extended the offer to be the first deaf president of Gallaudet University to Dr. I. King Jordan, a candidate for the job who had been thrown into the middle of the debate. However, the protests continued because this was just one of four demands. The students were not going to be satisfied until their other three demands were met, that the head of the Board of Trustees resign, that the board be composed of 51% deaf members, and that the protesters would not receive academic consequences for their involvement in Deaf President Now. On Sunday, March 18th, one week to the day after Dr. Zinzer was announced as the next president, and a few days after her resignation, the Board of Trustees met and agreed to all terms. The protest was over. In the years since the Deaf President Now movement, all presidents of Gallaudet University have been deaf. The current president, Roberta Cordano, is the first deaf woman in that position. From its roots of being five children of formerly enslaved parents, the Kendall Demonstration Elementary School currently numbers 112. The Model Secondary School has 175 students. Gallaudet University is now home to more than 1,100 students. These schools continue to promote the use of sign language to meet the educational and communication needs of the deaf community. And they did that even when the tides turned in the United States against the use of sign language. On the next and final episode of this short series, we will discuss the Milan Conference, the rise of oralism in Deaf American education, and one of the most controversial figures in Deaf history, Alexander Graham Bell. 
This series was researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Charlie Worrell. The opening quotes were voiced by Lainey Hobbs, the host of True Crime Fan Club. You can find the link to the sources for the series and the transcripts in the show notes. <laughs>